I don't know about that, but it's going to be a two-parter for sure. So, um, hey, did you guys notice that Steve's wearing Birkenstocks? It's like, yeah, so it's Claremont, right? All right, well, good morning. Well, um, my, my title today, we're, we're in the, the series on friendship, right? So my title today is Friendship with Sinners. Now, I, it's kind of a, I don't know, I, I use the word sinner, and it kind of seems maybe a little shocking or a little offensive because, I don't know, the world doesn't like to be called sinners. So, but, okay, how about friendship with unbelievers? Is that a little more seeker-sensitive for you guys? Does that work? Uh, anyway, uh, so friendship with sinners. This is actually, a, this is a difficult question. This is a hard thing to flesh out. Um, you might be recently saved. You might, you might uh, be living in two worlds. You have your Christian friends, and then you have your unbelieving friends, your, your, your sinner friends, okay? Um, so how do we do this? How do we navigate this water? How do you, as a parent, how do you navigate this, these waters with your kids? You've got, you know, your kids have, they have church friends. Sometimes the church kids are just as bad as the regular kids, right? Um, you got your... You got your, you got your, your, your church, your kids have church friends, and then your kids have those other friends. And so we're going to be talking about this very difficult topic. You know, how do I, I, I really like these guys. These are my friends, but uh, they're not, they're not, by any of the means, they're not walking with the Lord. So we're going to take a look at this today. Uh, before we jump into the word, would you open up in prayer with me? God, we thank you for this day, and I just agree with everything that was said this morning Thank you so much for blessing us with people and resources and with a fresh breath. And I, 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 we are so excited. So thank you for providing. Amen. All right, I've got two scriptures that I think I'm going to just paraphrase for the sake of time this morning. Um, the first one is the story of, of Jesus and the centurion. Okay, do you guys remember this story? Um, Jesus is doing his, he's going into Capernaum, and as he's into Capernaum, a sinner approaches him. And he's not just a regular sinner, he's a Roman. He's a Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion says, my, my servant is, is on death's bed. He's tormented, he's dying, uh, can't, can you do anything? Jesus' response is, I'm going to come and heal him. I'm on my way, let's go, I'll heal him. And the centurion's response from that is, you know, I am so grateful, but you're not worthy to come into my house because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Roman, I'm a pagan. But I tell you what, I understand some things about authority. I'm a man under authority myself. And being a man under authority myself, I have a lot of, since I'm a centurion, I'm in charge of 100 other people. So I, I understand authority, and if you say, if I tell, you know, these soldiers to go, they'll go. And if I, if I tell these guys to come, they'll come. And if the emperor tells me to head over to Rome, you better believe I'm going. So I understand authority, and all I really need from you is, as I need your word, if you speak the word, I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus' response is absolutely amazing. He says, I have never seen such great faith in this land. You have outdone 
my Jewish brothers and sisters, with the expression of your faith. Because you believe, your servant is healed. There's one thing I want to, I kind of want to flesh out and point out about how much risk this centurion took. This request is not for his child. This request is for his slave. And in Roman culture, in Roman society, the slave was a, one of two things. It was either considered cattle, and it was expendable, and you had every right to kill your slave. They had no legal rights at all. But something else happened with inside Roman culture where there was almost even an adoption of the servant or of the slave. And so... I'm kind of reading between the lines, but the Roman probably considered this servant as one of the family. It was an oikos. It was, a, you know, it was a, a family unit. And so he probably had great affection for his servant. He loved this servant so much that he was willing to risk public ridicule and approach a Jewish prophet for a healing. He was desperate. He was willing to do anything to see the servant whom he loved healed. And it was only because of the faith, the belief, that his servant was healed. There's another story where Jesus is um, in the Galilee region, and he approaches uh, a well, and there's a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans, uh, they, they weren't quite Jews, but they practice a form of Judaism. They, they uh, I just think of the Great Reformation where you had the Catholics and then you had the Protestants. And so it was kind of like that system going on. Like they basically did the same stuff, but they didn't like each other. They didn't agree. There were some issues of theology that they didn't agree with and they just didn't talk to each other. In fact, they probably killed each other. And so Jesus is at this well and you know the story. There's a woman drawing water, and Jesus says, can you give me some water? And it, it, she knows. She knows what ethnicity and what group Jesus comes from. And she says, are you kidding me? You're asking me for water? The disciples, had, they'd, they'd gone off to get lunch. So it's just Jesus by himself with this woman, and he begins a conversation about the living water with a, with a woman that he ought to be at odds with. And they discuss how, how you know, I have, I have a water that you know nothing about. I have water that springs up with inside of you that gives you life. She says, can I have this water so I don't get so tired drawn, you know, from this well all the time? He says, you don't understand. You Samaritans don't understand. You, you, you're worshiping the wrong way, and, and you're even thinking the wrong way. You actually, you're thinking in, with a religious mindset. And then Jesus does something very unusual. He calls this woman on her sin. He says, uh, why don't you ask your husband? She says, I don't, uh, my husband's not around. He's like, I know, because you have five husbands, and the guy that you're sleeping with right now, he's not even, you're not married to him. You're, you're living in sin. And her response to Jesus calling her on her sin is, well... You Jews think that it's okay to worship in the temple, but my people, we do the same exact thing, but we do it up on the mountain. And what she's doing is she's redirecting the conversation because she doesn't want to confront her sin that Jesus has 
brought to the to, brought it up to the front. She's like, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about religion instead. Let's get into a theological discussion. I don't want to deal with my junk. And so what we see, we see Jesus engaging two different types of people with a friendly conversation. A full-blown pagan and then a religious person. Both probably, obviously, living some type of a sinful lifestyle. So basically, there's two camps on whether or not we as believers, we as followers of Christ, whether we ought to engage in friendship with unbelievers. To make it more shocking, sinners. Friends with sinners. This is a, this is a question we've all asked. This is a question your teenage kids are asking you right, well, actually, they're avoiding it. You are asking the question, okay? What's the right answer? There's two camps. One is, no, you don't. In fact, I've got scripture to prove it. You want to read it? You want to read this scripture that says you can't have unchristian friends? All right, let's look at it. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 6, 14. This is the classic, right? You know this one. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteous and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? That makes sense, right? So don't, don't, be, don't be hooked up with unbelievers. The yoke is the, you know, it's the, there's a lot of farm analogy stuff because it's an agrarian society. So the yoke was the, you know, it's what pulled the plow. It says, you know, you can't, you can't be heading in the same direction as the, as the unbeliever. You can't be working with them. You can't be participating in life with them. You need to segregate. That's one approach. And here it gets even a little harsher. In James chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends of the world becomes an enemy of God. Pretty straightforward, right? This is the word of God. It says, don't be friends with the world. If you're friends with the world, you're enemies with God. Black and white. You guys ready to go home? That's what the Bible says about friendship. We done? That's what it says. It's the word of God. It says right here, don't be friends with the world. Can't do it. Okay, so those are the two approaches. And I will even say that they are right. They are right in their context that they're writing in. They might even be right in your specific context. Where you are right now, this is probably a word from the Lord, and you need to, you need to obey it. I'll give you some examples of why you shouldn't have friends that are unbelievers. Uh, one, you're young in the faith. You've just crossed over. You've just been introduced to the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, when you are an unbeliever, when you are a sinner, uh, there's not a whole lot at stake. The enemy of God already has you. He's not going to spend time, resources, little, little guys that do his bidding. He's not going to waste that on you. He's got you. you. You live in his world. You're a part of his system. He doesn't care 
whether, what, what you do. It's all on autopilot when you're, when you're a sinner. But as soon as you step across that line of faith, there's a war going on for your soul. And he's going re- to unleash hell to get you back. Because like God's a jealous God, well, the enemy of God is jealous too. And he's actually angry. And he wants what you have. And he's going to try and steal you back. So if you're young in, the, in your faith, Jesus talks about this, about, about the seed falling on soil. Some of it gets tossed into weeds and it gets choked. Some of it gets tossed in, in gravel and the roots don't go down deep enough and the birds come and eat it. That could be you. Your friends could be weeds when you were a new believer. Your friends can be used by the enemy of God himself to get you back on his side. So you really have to take a hard look at this. Okay, are my friends going to drag me down? Are they going to continue to cause me to stumble? Am I going to blow it? If I walk into this environment, am I going to blow it? And you know, you, you, know, you know yourself well enough. If you're an alcoholic, don't go into the bar to witness. If you have a problem with gambling, don't go to the Vegas Strip to evangelize. Come on, you know yourself better than that. Don't trick yourself. You're too young in the faith. You need to be discipled. You need to be grown up. You need to, you need to cut ties with your pagan friends. You need to shed some of those friends. And the, tr- the, the, the same is, well, well I'll, I'll get there in a second. But you have to ask yourself that hard question. How young am I in the faith? How strong am I in the faith? Next thing that we got to do is that sometimes in church life, in family life, you need to draw a line in the sand. When we do church, this church, is a, this church fosters a culture of grace. We're, I don't know if you've been around, you figured that out. We will, we will always err on the side of grace. We will always err on... on um, on freedom over legalism. You know, we, we want to, see, we, will, we will allow you to mess up in, in your own little bubble and we won't kick you out unless you're, you're sleeping with your stepmother and you're okay with it. That's in, that's in Corinthians. I don't have time to get there. Um, <laughs> uh, it happened. Paul's like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have a, a community of grace. And then he gets news. Wait, wait, wait. You're, somebody's sleeping with your stepmom and you're okay with it? And you're just going to grace him? You guys are nuts. You could probably see like a nervous twitch in Paul's eye. He's like, oh, they just don't get it. You know, the, the great thing about fostering a culture of grace, you just, you just lather on grace really thick and you've been graced and most of us in here have been graced there's going to be a sermon title coming up one of these days. Have you been graced? It's Kathy McGarity, one of our elders, has coined that term. Have you been graced? But when grace gets laid on too thick, um, sometimes things get a little hazy, and you can't tell the sinner from the saint. Sometimes the church folks who are, who are practicing sin the most um, are kind of becoming overshadowed by the, the new person that has experienced grace for the very first time, and they have an intimacy with the Lord that most religious people don't have. And so there's, there's this area, and we just, sometimes you just need to, in your own life, in your own family, in your own, 
fellowships, your own church. Sometimes there just needs to be a line drawn in the sand and saying, look, this is what we believe. This is righteousness. This is whole truth. As for me and my house and me and my church and me and my family, we serve the Lord. We don't play around with this other stuff. We don't dabble in this. This is, this, we're Christians. We're little Christ's. Let's not fool ourselves. So sometimes there just needs to be that line drawn in the sand. And sometimes that means that you shed some pagan friends in order to make that line clear. Because the confusing part is we got one foot in and one foot out. We tend to live separate lives. We have our sacred life and then we have our secular life. And if you're, if you're, if you're swimming in both worlds, you need to know that you are and be honest with yourself. All right, next thing. Um, number three, whether or not you should, you know, have unbelieving friends, is that you have to ask yourself another hard and serious question. Am I spiritually and emotionally mature enough to handle unbelieving friends? Do I have what it takes? It has nothing to do with the longevity of your walk. You could have been born into the faith. You could have been walking with God your entire life. It doesn't mean that you're spiritually or emotionally mature. You could still be a baby. You have to ask yourself that question. If I, if I move into an environment, is the devil going to eat my lunch? Because I'm not spiritually mature enough. And when you have kids, you have to, you have to discern your kids' friends. This is going to be a very difficult question for parents. Are your kids spiritually and emotionally mature enough to handle unbelieving friends in their lives? It's, it, parent, it's your responsibility to monitor your kids' friends. And me growing up, I don't know what to say. I want to say I was spiritually mature enough or not, but my parents trusted me with a lot of friends that were, were really bad I mean, they were horrible. They were, some of the, they were some of the biggest sinners on campus. They were the football players and the jocks, and they, they were terrible. And I, I, for some reason, I had a level of influence with them, over them. Sometimes it didn't work out. Sometimes I got shoved into a locker. Uh, but for the most part, I, I, I was able to have a certain amount of influence over that, that group, over my friends. I, we baptized a majority of my friends in the swimming pool. My, my, my youth pastor did it. So I was able to lead them in, in, into a place of, of repentance, a place of baptism through friendship. Does that make sense? I baptized my friends through friendship, not by beating them up with the Bible, not by guilt-shame, by close friendship. Now, most of them need to be baptized again. Or maybe we should have held them down a little longer. <laughs> but I, I can't deny the work of the, of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Occasionally one will call me. Whenever they screwed up something in their life, they'll call me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, man. What'd you do? What, what did you do this time? And... Uh, but they were seed planted. Do your kids have the spiritual maturity to do it? It's your responsibility. Okay, I want to tell you something else that happened when I was growing up. There was times 
vivid memories where my parents would say, you're not hanging out with that kid. What? Why not? I hang out with Chad. He almost got arrested last week. I know. You're not hanging out with that one. And on that one, there wasn't, I didn't have a rebellion. I, I said, why? And you know, what the, <laughs> you know what the answer was? Just because. <laughs> okay? I'm like, and I remember um, relinquishing that one. I said, all right, okay. And I, and, I, and I severed the friendship. Can your kids do that? Can your kids do that? Now, when the first girlfriend came around, then I gave some major pushback. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. I'm dating whoever I want. You know, they were still right, right? <laughs> anyway. But yeah, you, you gotta, your kids, they're your responsibility. You gotta, you gotta know who's coming into your house and you need to know what they're bringing in. You need to know what they're bringing in. It's your responsibility to discern that. There's a lot at stake. All right. So those are the reasons why we shouldn't have unbelieving friends. They drag you down. They make you fall. You might get sucked back into your old lifestyle. You know. But why should we have Christian friends? There's actually a lot of different approaches to friendship evangelism. Friend, there's a, it's powerful. Actually, it's the only way. If you desire God, if you have a passion for God, well, then you ought to have a passion for the lost. You ought to have a passion for what he has a passion for. There ought to be an affection that you have for them. Your heart ought to go out to those that are lost. And so, how do you do it? There's a lot of different ways that you can do it. You could, you could just continue your friendships, and you could, you could just be yourself. You can just hang out and do all the things that you usually normally do. And if your walk is spiritually mature, if you're healthy, well, you just ought to just you know, gospel ought to just rub off onto them, like through osmosis. And they're like, oh, there's something different about you. Why, why are you so happy? Why is there so much joy in your life? Why am I so miserable? And why, why does things change when I'm around you? That's one way to do it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I, 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 prefer, I, I like that approach, actually. Um, so that's one approach to friendship evangelism. Another one is to continue just to do your normal friendship stuff, the barbecues and hanging out. And, and then, and then, but in your mind, you're, you're strategizing. You're waiting for that opportunity. You're always looking for the opportunity. Like when they have a hard time, when they're going through a difficult season in their life, when they've blown it, and then you get, bam, you jump on them. And you nail them with the gospel. You seize that opportunity when they're in their weakest point. You let them have it. So that's another way to do it. Again, I don't know, wrong or right, but that's an option. And then the other option is, through friendship evangelism, is that you're always preaching the gospel to them. Every chance that you get, every opportunity, it's God talking. You're telling them how bad they are and that they need to repent and that they need to know Jesus. And, you know, and the option is either you wear them down, they give up and they accept Jesus, or they just, don't, they just say, don't, dude, don't call me anymore. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Okay? So those are the different approaches to kind of how to do it. 
Uh, next week, we'll, I'll talk about a better way. Next week is, uh, is part two, and I'm going to talk about a better way. But um, why? Why should we have unbelieving friends or sinners' friends? Well, number one thing is, is that they're, they're sick. They're lost. They're, they need hope. And you are the vehicle for that hope. That might be your purpose. God might be setting you up to give them hope. Now, one of the, in Matthew uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, um, Jesus encounters Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He, he, was a, he, was a, he was Jewish, but he was a tax collector. He worked for the IRS, but it gets worse. It's like he had the IRS badge, but he was Tony Soprano. So it's like the mafia. It's they just went in, they shook everybody down. Everybody hated these guys because they were rich, because they put in their cut, they put in their heavy cut right on top of it. Hated these guys. You think we have problems with the IRS now? It was, it was really bad back then. And Jesus, just walking down the street, encounters a sinner, like some of the, the worst of the worst, a tax collector, I hate the IRS. Raise your hand if you hate the IRS. So I'm not supposed to do that, am I? I'm not, I can't do politics in church, right? I got, I got two hands going up. I got legs going up. I hate those guys. Okay, anyway. Um, I got some personal pain there. Anyway. Uh, sorry. I didn't expect that to come out. Um, Unlike the woman, at the, the woman caught in adultery or even the woman at the well doesn't call Matthew on his sin. He says, why don't you come with me? Come on, let's go. Would you be my friend? What? We don't do that. We, we make sure we highlight how horrible they are. Make them feel bad about themselves. Guilt them. Shame them. If you, don't, if you don't love Jesus, you're scum and you're going to hell. He doesn't do that with Matthew. He, Matthew turns out to be one of the 12. Responsible for writing one of the Gospels. There's a debate on that, by the way. But he probably did because he was a tax collector who was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He was a writer. He had a purpose. Just come with me. And then, you know, then, then it gets really bad. Jesus goes to Matthew's house where there are sinners there. There's other tax collectors there. And he, he's at a party. And he's eating and drinking with these guys. And the Pharisees flip out. What? Jesus is friends with sinners? You can't do that. You can't fellowship with sinners. We know what the Bible says. You can't do it. We have to, we have to, we have to preserve our cult. We have to make sure that this doesn't infiltrate in. You can't do this. And what's Jesus' response? I didn't come here to take care of the righteous. I came here to save the sick. You see, even, even though Jesus is extremely um, compassionate and engaging and, in fr and friendly with everybody he meets, Make no mistake, Jesus has an agenda. 
And when you meet with your friends, you ought to have an agenda in the back of your mind. And that agenda is, they're sick, and God's going to use me to give them hope. They're sick and they're dying. They don't know it. They're part of a world system that they can't get out of. I am that light that I'm going to bring into their lives. Now, however you felt led to do that, that ought to be your agenda. Well, you're saying Christians have an agenda? Yeah, we do. We do. We want to we reach the world. We want to take it back from the enemy of God. That's our agenda. We want to save souls. We want to be the hands and feet of Christ. We want to do what he did. He actually told us to. All right, next thing is kind of important about making sure you're keeping touch with your, with your sinner friends, your pagan guys, the, your, your, the unbeliever folks. It's actually good for you if you are spiritually and emotionally mature enough and you know that you're not going to get ripped off, you know that you're not, they're not going to cause you to, to fall and stumble, it's actually really good because it keeps you real. It keeps you, it keeps you in, in reality and what the real world is. They say that once somebody uh, accepts Christ, uh, they, they enter into the church and within two years, they don't have their old friends anymore. They've shed all of their pagan friends if they've done it right. I mean, and that's, you know, that doesn't really apply to church. Uh, there's other studies that say that we, we recycle our friends every two years, uh, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. That's kind of what we do. We have a new set of friends within every two years. It's not healthy. As we talked about um, uh, you know, deep spiritual friendships uh, with a handful of people. When Mako talked about the the spiritual blood brothers with Jonathan and David, Hesed. You know, do you have Hesed with people? Uh, it's really difficult to do in our culture because we, we live in a consumer culture. We're, we're even friend consumers. What's a, if I have this friendship, what's, what's in it for me? What do I get out of the friendship? So it's very difficult to maintain these friendships. But why it's important for a, a Christian to end their mind to say, I always have to be able to touch the unbeliever and I have to be able to be friendly with them. It's important because we can lose track of what reality is. Uh, it, it's, it's especially so for pastors. Because I, I work in this building. Nothing ever goes wrong at church. We're all a bunch of little saints. No one ever loses their temper. It's, it's heaven on earth, folks. I just wish that all of you could work here. <laughs> Heaven on earth. And I, mean, I, I say that, you know, flippantly, but, you know, there is a difference between working under this roof and working where you guys work. I know that because I've been where you guys work. And some of the, one of the healthiest things that I can do as a pastor is, it sounds terrible, but is to dip back down into the world to run an estate sale or go to a flea market or hang out with people that I know are going to steal from me. Because that's real life, right? This is what you experience day in and day out. People are out to stab you in the back. And so it's, it keeps me real. It keeps the gospel message alive whenever I, I, I immerse myself in the world. It's actually where I believe pastors ought to be. They ought to be engaging the world and not quit living in a, in a fairy tale.
of church life, church culture. They need to get in. They need to get their hands dirty. So uh, it, it keeps you real. Another thing that, that when you hang out with unbelievers is they ask really, really good questions. Like, well, what about, what about evolution? I don't know. This is what the Bible says. Don't ask me hard questions. What about the problem of evil? If God's so good, why do, good, why do, why do bad things happen to such good people? I don't know. I just have to, I've got to believe this stuff by faith. Ignorance is bliss. Don't ask me that kind of stuff. Just come to church and sing happy songs with me. <laughs> don't approach me with difficult questions. So when you, when you, when you engage your unbelieving friends, you're going to get a pulse on what is reality, what they are going through, what they are thinking about. And if you have the courage... If you're not a lazy Christian, you're going to dig into the Word and you're going to find the right answers for them. You're going to be able to solve their problems or at least have an answer for their problems. If you don't have an answer right away, say, I will get back to you. Let's go, let, me, let me do a little bit of research. Let me ask Pastor Steve Shogren, and then I'll get back to you. May I see? All right. And then the number one, the most important reason, is because Christ modeled it. Jesus modeled it. I know what I read in James, and I know what, I, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. You know, you can't be unequally yoked, and you can't, have, you can't be friends with the world. But what Jesus did is something different, right? And how we live our lives, how we build our Christian theology ought to be based on what Jesus did. He was friends with them, all of them. He went to their parties. It wasn't just Matthew. Zacchaeus might not have even been a Jew. He says, get out of that tree. He was the chief of all tax collectors. He was Matthew's boss. I want to have dinner at your house. Let's hang out. Not you scum of the earth, you IRS pig. <laughs> it wasn't that. I want to have dinner at your house. Just dinner. Let's hang out. So you see, Jesus modeled it. And what Jesus models in the Gospels, it, it trumps everything else. And I'll show you how it works in a second. So Jesus models it. All right, I'm going to show you how it works, and then we're going to be done, because i got to quit. All right. Did everybody get an envelope and a card? All right, this is what I want you to do. On the envelope, I would like for you to write as many people that you would like on there. This is just for you. You're not going to put it in the offering. This is, you're going to keep this in your Bible. I want, to write, I want you to write down your unbelieving friends. The sinners, right? Those sinners that we can't have come into church because they're sinners. Okay, I want you to write their names down, your unbelieving friends that you have compassion for. You love them. Let's be honest. You love them, right? You ought to. If you love God, guess what? You ought to love them. So write down their names. This wasn't part of the message this will be the key to next week. This will be the answer to what camp you fall in, how you really should do evangelism. 
But I want, again, this is, this is not going to make any sense to you at all. But I want you to write down, after you write down your names, I want you to write down, what do you want to do in life? Who do you want to be? If there were no limits, what would you want to do? Uh, Jonathan asked that to the kids. And one of the kids says, I want to be the pastor at Granite Creek Camp Community Church. Right? This is what I'm talking about. Sky's the limit. You're not allowed to write down religious answers. Oh, I only want to do what the Lord's will is. Don't write that. I'm not going to look at them, but don't write that. Don't write, oh, I, I only want to be used by God. Don't write that either. God wants to know what you want to do. Don't do the I want to be in God's will thing. That's, that's powerful. We, obviously, we need to be in God's will, but he wants to partner with you in your desires. What do you want to do? Who do you want to be with? Who do you want your friends to be? How, what, what kind of impact do you really want to make? Do you want to be a great musician? See? No religious stuff. Do you want to be a, a, a business person? Should you write these things down? The desires of your heart. Not his heart, your heart. And then I want you to seal it. Write October 31st. Stick it in your Bible. It's just for you. And what I'm going to tell you is that if you stick, if you commit yourself to spiritual growth and maturity until Halloween, you're going to be surprised at what comes up to the surface on that list of your desires, what will be highlighted. You will learn that some of it is not good, not God's will, but you will also notice that some of it is, been, is gonna be stuff that God says, yes, that's what I'm after. I'm after your creativity. And then those friends that you put on the list, I guarantee you some of them will be here. Some of them will be a part of this congregation, this family. But you've gotta commit yourself to growth. All right, let's take a look at James. Remember I said the harsh one? You know, James 4. If you're friends with the world, you're enemies with God. Pretty straightforward, right? Okay, let's read it in context with a slightly different translation. In context, James 4. Where, verse 1. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come out because you want your own way and you fight for it deep inside of yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and you are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and you're willing to risk violence to get it into your hands. You wouldn't think of asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know that you'd be asking for what you have no right to have. You are spoiled children. Did you catch that? You're children. Each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God if all you want is your own way. Flirting with the world every chance you get. You end up enemies of God and his way. Okay, so that's the verse I read to you. He took out the word friends and he replaced it with the word flirting. 
Do you see how it makes sense in context now? If we're all about wanting stuff, or if we're all about being selfish, if our motivations are wrong, everything gets skewed. We're children. See, spiritual children shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. Devil's going to eat your lunch. If you continue flirting with the world and don't have compassion for the world or friendship, true friendship with the world, then you're, that is where the problem lies. And do not suppose that God doesn't care. The Proverbs has it that he is fiercely jealous, that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willingly humble. Make sense? Do you see how it's put into context now? Yeah. Yeah, if you're, if you're, chi- if you're a child and if you're selfish and if you want toys, if you want stuff, if you want God to get you stuff, you have no business being friends with sinners. But if your desire is grace, if your desire above everything else is to be friends with God, well, then you've learned the secret. That's it right there. That's what we're going to talk about next week. If I could have the band and the ushers to come to the front. To begin uh, the thought process today, I, I would say if you have friend, unbelieving friends, don't jettison them. Don't look for all the problems and the pain that comes with friendship. Look, turn your attention towards your, the friendship that you have with God. That will straighten things out. If you have compassion for your friends, that's a really good thing. Don't give up on that. If you, if you blow it because you're, you're influenced by your friends, maybe you need to take some time away from them. Maybe you need to get around people that are going to build you up and not drag you down. This is the hard work that you'll have to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again so much for providing, for bringing provision, for bringing people, for bringing resources, uh, and then giving us lots of opportunity to serve those that are in need. We thank you for the transformation that happened in kids. We thank you for the transformation that's happening in this church. God, I thank you for the transformation that's happening right now in the hearts of the ones that we love, friends and family alike. Just because there's people in this room that are contending for them, that are praying for them, that have chosen to stand in the gap for them, we thank you for quickening their hearts. Bring him in, Lord. We love you.